Mindy Peterson, and this is Enhanced Life with Music, a holistic look at the power of music in our everyday lives. My husband and I recently celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary, (laughs) and around this time, I ran across an organization that was also established in 1997 and celebrating its 25th anniversary. Its mission really caught my attention. Its mission is to help students, schools, and communities reach their full potential through the power of making music. Totally speaking my language there. Since this organization started 25 years ago, this nonprofit has helped over 2,500 schools across the country develop music programs and has donated $68 million worth of instruments and technology to these schools, impacting millions of students' lives in hundreds of communities nationwide. The organization is called Save the Music, and joining me today to tell us all about it is Executive Director Henry Donahue. Welcome to Enhanced Life with Music, Henry. Thank you. That was a great intro. It's actually my 27th wedding anniversary. Oh, really? Year, but because uh, we that the 20 actual 25th anniversary was in 2020, we actually just went to celebrate the 25th oh, anniversary, although this okay. is the 27th, 27th year. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Well, can, you know, hey, that's, I can relate. That's what real life, married life is all about is being adaptable and pivoting when you need to, right? 100%. 100%. So what, what are you doing or what did you do to celebrate? We went to Charleston, South Carolina, which is a, a place I love going to. Oh, nice. Well, I have to admit- Great, great music town. <laughs> yeah, great. Yes, for sure. Well, we didn't really do a whole lot on the actual anniversary, but we did buy tickets to go to Hawaii. And this feels a little bit lame. We're taking our kids with us, but no, we're at I- the- we're- We're at that stage of parenting where one of our daughters is in college in Florida. We live in Minneapolis, so we never get to see her. And she's just an amazing human being who we love to spend time with. And then our second child, we have two. Our our son is a senior in high school. So we're kind of like, that clock is ticking on how much time we have with him. And he's also just a blast to be around. And when our daughter was a senior in high school, we had plans, tickets, everything to take the family to Hawaii for spring break her senior year. Well, that was 2020 and the trip got canceled, you know, a week before we were going to leave. So she keeps reminding us of that. This year, our son is a senior in high school. So we're kind of like, hey, we could like get a two for a year. We could do the the whole podcast. uh, (laughs) Kids and yeah, when we had the anniversary during the pandemic, and my kids are in a similar age range, people were like, "Well, maybe you could have a fancy dinner and they could wait on you." Somebody in my Mm. office said this, and I was like, "You don't understand teenagers at all. (laughs) (laughs) That that is not going to (laughs) fly." Especially not if you suggest it. Like if they came up with the idea, maybe like our. Our kids actually have done that. Maybe, maybe not as teenagers, maybe younger, but right, yeah, right. for sure. If they're not the ones coming up with the, no, the idea, no. that's so they not had dinner happen. with us at our home in lockdown. Uh, we're like, welcome, yes, welcome to the end of twenty fifth anniversary. <laughs> well, all right. Hey, what can Henry, I tell you about Save the Music? Yes. So tell us in a nutshell what is Save the Music and how and why was it started in nineteen ninety seven? The origin story, and a lot of people probably remember this is that it was started by the cable channel vh1 
What had happened is a guy named John Sykes, who was one of the founders of MTV and VH1, was principal for a day at a school in Brooklyn. And at that time, music was very core and still is in a lot of ways to the identity of MTV and VH1. And John himself was a drummer and and a musician and credited a lot of his success to that mindset and to that training. And he went, he was principal for, for a day at this high school in Brooklyn. And, you know, he saw that the music program, this is a New York City public school, was in rough shape. You know, the instruments were not in great condition. The school that once had had a robust music program didn't have one anymore. And he resolved to start a nonprofit that would help restore public school music education programs. And then he rallied. uh, And if you're in a similar age range to me, you would remember, you know, Whitney Houston and Celine Dion and Aretha Franklin and Mariah Carey to start having these annual concerts, the VH1 Divas concerts that funded this fledgling initiative to help restore music education at public schools. Yeah, those are big names. Uh, yeah. And it's, um, you know, it's funny, a lot of people bring, uh, still bring up the divas and, and the diva days. And our mission is the same now as it was when the initiative was started, which is the mission and vision are every student in every school should have the opportunity to make music as part of their education. Mm. Well, I love how that core mission has stayed the same because it's still relevant. And yet a lot of your approaches have changed in response to changing times and changes in the music industry. And we're going to be talking about that. But in the meantime, tell us how it works. How does Save the Music work in terms of I know you invest in schools, you support teachers. Tell us how how the program works. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think the landscape out there and many of your listeners probably know this is that many public schools do have music as part of their education, depending on who you talk to, probably 80 to 90% of schools do have music as a core offering. And most affluent parents and suburban parents expect that that's going to be part of their children's education and mm-hmm. often are supplementing it with private lessons or other after-school music things. Mm-hmm. You know, I went to public school in suburban Maryland, and I remember the day very clearly that the middle school band came to my elementary school multi-purpose room, you know, the the gymatorium or whatever yeah. it was, <laughs> uh-huh. and did a demo that, you know, you could be in band. There was a duo. They had a kid on trumpet and a kid on drums, and they did Rock Around the Clock. And <laughs> it blew my 10-year-old mind <laughs> that, that that was like a thing that you could do in school. And it gave me a peer group. It gave me a reason to come to school. It gave me a creative way to express myself in school. And prior to that, I'd been sort of a, I don't know, anxious, hyperactive kid. And it was a game changer for me. Mm -hmm. And my suburban school district had band, choir, jazz band, musical theater, show choir, all the things. And I did almost every one of them. Hmm. Landscape out there in the US right now is that the schools that don't have music as part of their offering, and it's about 15,000 schools serving about 5 million students, are concentrated in city school districts and rural school districts, and primarily in schools that serve Black, Latino, immigrant, and rural student populations. So we look for communities that have 
either very large school districts or a collection of school districts that we can work with in a specific place. And we approached the school administrations there about bringing music back or expanding music from what they have now. And when they commit to having a certified teacher in their budget, scheduling music during the school day and dedicating a room in the school for music, we, we don't do art on a cart, as, as they say. Um, <laughs> and when the district makes that commitment for 10 years, then Save the Music is going to be with them in that community to invest in every school, to make sure they have the instruments they need. Increasingly, we include technology, other equipment, the books, the stands, uh, and the teacher training to get each one of their school programs off the ground. And we look for communities and partners and school districts in those communities and places where, you know, we think we can make together with the school districts 20, 30, 50, 100 school investments in a single place. That's interesting. And I like the fact that you do require a certain commitment in terms of they need to hire a teacher, they need to provide a dedicated space, there's a 10 year commitment that's required. Once that commitment takes place and an agreement sort of entered into, I think you provide a lot of the support and materials in form of grants. Is that right? That's right. So we have a offering of grants. And when we say grants, what that really means is that we're going to be providing each school with the instruments, the technology, the equipment that they need. So they're they're not cash grants. Really what they are are okay. capital investments in the school to get the school over the hurdle of getting the program off the ground. But we work very closely with the school and we have a full offering of grants that range from elementary general music to middle school where they can choose from band or strings or mariachi in some cases or music mm-hmm. tech to our high school programs, which are really music tech focused. So around beat, oh, okay. ma- beat making and production, most high schools do have some kind of band and choir and maybe a musical theater offering. And so where we've seen very strong demand from the schools in the school district is in this music tech realm. So hmm. production, beat making, audio engineering, things like that. So we work with the school administration and local partners to put together a multi-year plan that hopefully gets them to the point with some mix of those grants and you know over a number of years to 100% of students or as close as we can get having access to music you know, across that community. What are you seeing now that you've been at this for 25 years? What are you seeing in terms of the level of health in these new music programs? Once that 10 years is up, are they pretty much up and running, very self-sustaining? Are they requiring a lot of follow-up and continued support from Save the Music? That's, That's a great question. One is this is a very, very sustainable model. Just off the top, in the time I've been here, we have invested in over 500 new school programs. This is actually 2022 is our, our biggest year yet. We invested in 154 new school programs this year. And then on top of that, did about another a dozen emergency grants to places like New Orleans, where you know the hurricane last year had really mm. impacted a number of school programs. So the basic model that the school district is stepping up with the teacher salary and the class time and the building space 
And then we're making that one-time capital investment to get each school off the ground and then sticking with the district over a number of years. That's a very, very sustainable model. The 500 schools we've invested in since I've been here, close to 100% of them are still going. Wonderful. Um, anyway, yeah. and that's and, But we do try to stick with the community and the district the whole time. We don't. And this is, I think, maybe a shift from the early days of Save the Music. We don't roll into town with a celebrity, drop off the instruments, you know. Take and a then, bunch of pictures. Right. <laughs> and then wave or TikToks or whatever and uh, wave, mm-hmm. wave goodbye and go on to the next town. We are uh-huh. very, very committed to this idea that when you invest in public school music education, so you're trying to reach every possible young person at, at every school in a community, that's hopefully the foundation or the catalyst for growth across that community's entire music ecosystem. So when Mm. students are making music in school, then more students are showing up after school for those enrichment programs. More young people are participating with other nonprofits in that community. Teaching artists do better. Venues do better. You know, we really see ourselves as the bottom of the pyramid supporting growth across an entire community's ecosystem. So you kind of identify schools that could use your assistance. You donate grants in the form of musical instruments, technology, equipment for the schools to jumpstart and get those programs off the ground and running. You provide grants that allow for professional development workshops for teachers. And I thought it was interesting that when you say teachers, it's not just those music teachers, but you include principals and superintendents, administrators, in that educational support system that you provide. That's right. And I think that's the advocacy part of it also, mm-hmm. where we really need, for example, a, a superintendent or principal in a given place to be a champion for music. Mm-hmm. We, do, we don't want the teacher to be you know, on an island. So we do a lot bringing teachers together in a specific community and uh, as a cohort, you know, doing training. Cause unlike, you know, a math and my mom was an English teacher. So mm-hmm. I think about the high school where, where she taught, there was an English department, you know, there were other English teachers sure. there, there in the building. A lot of times the music teacher is a department of one. Sure. Yep. So we see a lot of value in bringing music teachers together in a community and also making sure that the principal, the superintendent, the district level administrators who are overseeing music and the arts see us as a, as a great partner. Well, that's really helpful for the music teachers themselves when you're educating and supporting the principals and superintendents, administrators as well, because otherwise, unless those administrators have musical background and have that understanding of what music brings to the table, the music teacher may find that they're having to justify themselves and explain the value that they bring and try, you know, try to convert right. people. And that's just a whole nother level, you know, and to be able to take that off their plate. Like you said, it really comes back to advocacy and advocacy and education are really two sides of the same coin. So educating those superintendents and administrators really is an advocacy endeavor. And that brings us to another leg of the sort of that three-legged stool, if we want to look at it that way, of the support that you provide is that advocacy piece. You advocate on state, local, and national levels for laws that ensure 
accessibility and equality in music education. Talk to us just real quick about the activity that you're doing in that arena. Right. And I th- and hopefully this is all an organic part of everything we do. Like I said, I we really feel strongly that we want to partner with and create and grow these projects with people in the communities that we serve. You know, every, and this is, I guess, the local advocacy part of it, but pretty much every community, town, city has an existing music ecosystem. People are making music in church. You know, people are making music at home. We don't really come to a community with a predetermined idea of what kind of music people Mm. should be making. You know, there are a lot of music nonprofits out there and we work with a ton of them that are focused on a specific genre. So they're advocates for strings or bringing popular music to the music classroom or jazz or what have you. We in practice do a lot of connecting and meeting with local people administrators, music people, nonprofits, potential funders, before we even propose a plan mm. for school music there. And I, I found that that's been a very valuable approach because a lot of times your assumptions about what students are excited about or what the administration is focused on or what kind of music uh, local people are engaged with, you know, change through mm. that through that process. Well, and that's just a really great way to support one of your other strong core values, which is to support culturally rich communities. And so that's awesome that you take a look before you just dive in and say, what is the culture of this community? What music feeds into that culture? What music is valued? What music is already being practiced? I'm sure those are all questions that you're taking a look at before you just jump in. A hundred percent. And so, you know, for example, we have a very active project in uh, the state of Mississippi, which started in the in the Mississippi Delta. And clearly that's incredibly culturally rich, particularly in the terms of music area of the U.S. Pretty much every type of popular music that you can think of from blues to country to gospel to R&B has its roots Mm-hmm. you know, somehow in, in Mississippi and the Delta. And, you know, they're very and, and rightfully proud of that cultural history and legacy. They're also um, very interested at the principal level of having an amazing halftime show at the football game. <laughs> you know, so, you know, that's the kind of like ground level advocacy. I always tell people when the football coach is on the call, what we're talking about, <laughs> You know, how we're investing in that, that's always a great sign that, you know, there's like really organic local support for the, for the band program. Hey friends, this is Dr. Garrett Hope. I am a speaker, coach, and composer. I am also host of the Portfolio Composer podcast and founder and executive director of the Ultimate Music Business Summit. The third annual Ultimate Music Business Summit is a three-day virtual conference that'll be held on January 5th, 6th, and 7th, 2023. This three-day virtual event features over two dozen speakers to help you build your music business. As a musician, you care about your art. You want to make a difference in your community and in the world. You want to pass your knowledge on to your students. And you want to do more than trade your time for money and just get by every month. UMBS is all about the one thing you didn't learn in music school, realizing that you are a business. 
It offers dozens of ways to build a career as an independent musician, including marketing, copywriting, studio development, mindset, money, and networking opportunities. Whether you're a composer, touring musician, studio teacher, recording artist, or professor, UMBS is for you. Get your ticket now at musicsummit.biz. Well, one thing I want to point out is that while your grant applications are distributed by invitation only, and like you said, you identify these schools who could really use help jumpstarting their music program, probably don't already have one in place. You do also provide a lot of resources for teachers, for schools, for parents who already do have music programs in their district. You have an online resource center that anyone can explore and a really amazing filter button where people can sort of sort through this extensive list of online resources that you've curated. Tell us some more about the resources that you offer and who they're for. Sure. And also, I want to shout out, there's a person on our team, her name is Rebecca Hoff, uh, who's a former music teacher who has really built out all of these all of these programs. She's our head of teacher programs and also runs the online music resources page. And I'm sure uh, this doesn't could be a surprise to anybody, but when we went into March and April 2020, we really had to dramatically change our approach because students and teachers weren't in school to make sure that we were, you know, and you said our you had our mission right off, off the top, which is serving students, schools, and communities through the power of making music. And out of that came two things. One is the online music education resources, mm-hmm. which you which you cited. And so we moved very, very quickly to get as many mostly free resources as we could up on the site for students, for teachers, for parents at every level for any instrument. And now two and a half years later, the resources that are on there are really tried and true and road tested. So mm. the curated, searchable, you know, frequently updated resources for teachers, students, and parents that are on the site are really, are really great. And you can just go to savethemusic.org and click on online music education, which is at the top of the page and dive into that section. And that has advocacy tools. There's downloads of what articles, I think. There's live performances. There's services Ah. you can sign up. There's um, online providers of music lessons who have free and special offers for people that save the music. Uh, It's a very, very rich set of resources. And you know, I don't know. It's like the consumer reports. We don't we don't take any money from anybody to get their resource up on there. It's really okay. a, a reflection of what our program team thinks are are high quality resources for people. Mm-hmm. You know, the uh, and then the other thing we needed to do was expand the amount of support that we were giving for teachers, particularly in the realm of, and this is sort of later. Uh, in the pandemic and as students were returning to schools, social emotional learning and trauma-informed care and working on how you can incorporate those techniques into the music classroom. So we had a large grant from a a big New York-based foundation to uh, train over a thousand teachers on leveraging, you know, the power of the music classroom to address students' social-emotional needs. 
you know, after they've been out of the building, you know, uh-huh. for, for a year or more. And that, that was an incredible, incredible program that connected us with people um, like Scott Edgar or Dr. Mm-hmm. Ping Ho or Cameron Jenkins, who were like the real leaders, both in music education and incorporating social emotional learning into, into the music classroom. And we always tell people and principals, you know, that, don't invest or, or in addition to investing in, you know, like a pure SEL or, you know, I, I always think, and you tell me, I think SEL is a bit jargony. I think it's better to just say like life skills. It's much easier to incorporate that into your music program in a lot of ways than it is into your, your math class. And so you sure. have, you have an expert in the building and a, place for you know students to express themselves creatively already and that's that's you know your music and arts classrooms yeah well i'll definitely include some links in the show notes to some other sel or and life skills um, episodes (laughs) that we've had because that's a huge benefit of music in fact you mentioned scott edgar he's been a guest on this podcast and when i went to your supporters page it's it's just a jaw-dropping list of other music and arts advocacy organizations that I recommend or recognize, like the Social Emotional Learning Organization and others, ASCAP, but also just household company names like AT&T and Sony Music, Sirius, Paramount, TikTok. So it was fun to see all the different yeah, it's companies like the- and... Music is like the last, uh, and I tell people like one of the last, like non, knock on wood, like non-controversial <laughs> issues yeah. out there. So we, we try to cast sure. a wide net. And then for teachers, um, you know, maybe we can also send you for the show notes, a list of the 12 or so communities nationally that we're investing most of our resources in because almost every week we're doing something in one of those places. Um, I just typed a few in here as I was getting ready to talk to you. We're sending uh, a number of teachers from West Virginia to attend uh, the Midwest clinic. We just Mm. did a El Sistema partnership Mm -hmm. in Santa Cruz. Um, Mm. We all the time, uh, because our elementary general music program is very ORF based uh, in some ways. We Uh provide scholarships for teachers to go get their ORF level classes. Uh We did a a music tech intensive with uh, Wayne State in Detroit last summer, where we tried to round up every music tech or music tech interested teacher in Detroit Metro that we could find. And Uh so if we are in your community as a teacher, it's very likely that we are trying to get teachers together and provide some value on the professional development and or just, you know, gathering side. Mm. Well, I love to see that collaboration. I'm a big believer that there's strength in our unity and we can be united without needing uniformity. Like we can have differences in application and perspective and still come together in a common cause. So I love that you're so active in collaborating with so many different organizations. One thing I want to point out to listeners in terms of your funding is 76% of your spending goes to support music programs. 18% of the budget goes to fundraising costs, primarily development staff compensation and events. And just 6% goes to cover administrative costs, such as legal and accounting. So I thought that was pretty, uh, pretty impressive. You guys run a tight ship over there. Oh, thanks. Thanks. We, we try. <laughs> we try. 
Well, I want to make sure that we leave time for you to tell us about what's next for Save the Music, because I know you went through a big rebranding recently. You're all geared up for the next 25 years and and really have some exciting things um, that you're looking to be doing in this next phase. So talk to us about what's next in this next phase for Save the Music. Sure. Top level, we think that we can get to the point in our collective lifetimes here where every student and every school is making music as part of their education. You know, 5 million students, 15,000 schools, you know, if we can continue to scale this community-driven model, that's, I think, in our in our sights. I'll just give you one small example. Newark, New Jersey, which is one of our partnerships, we've invested in 50 schools just in the city of Newark. And that project was a partnership with three large foundations, the mayor's office, the school board, a consortium of local nonprofits, uh, Queen Latifah, Wyclef Jean mm-hmm. were involved. And in that time, we were able to take the percentage of Newark students with access to music from 53% when we started to 98%. And we've seen, you know, increases in attendance across those schools. Test scores have improved. Teacher satisfaction is higher. Student well-being, you know, has grown. And so we really do think that if we can get to the point where we have 25 or 30 or 50 projects like that, which isn't out of the realm of possibility, then we can get to the point where pretty much every student and every school has music as mm. part of their, their education. You know, And then looking to the future where we see growth in demand for music education and really incredible growth in student participation in music is in music tech. So we have a thing called the Jay Dilla Music Tech Program for the hip hop fans who listen to this podcast. Jay Dilla is really, he's like the Coltrane of, uh, of mm. hip hop, an incredible okay. producer who passed away in, in 2006. We're about to pass 50 schools in our Jay Dilla program, which supports mm. production, songwriting, beat making, DJing, enge- sound engineering. And that program has been growing just year over year at, a, at an incredible rate. And then when you think about participation, not just access, because we've traditionally been on the access side, but we also want to make sure that participation in music is growing. Adding music tech and hip hop and popular music to these high school programs increases the number of students participating like beyond what we could have expected. We have a high school at one of those Newark schools where they have 1,600 kids at the high school or students at the high school. And last year, 1,100 of them expressed interest in music. And so you're pulling in the students who have been making music and have been on that music track and are now want to apply that to recording their own music, songwriting, production. But it also pulls in a whole other population of students who maybe weren't on that track or got off that track, you know, somewhere yeah. in, in, in middle school. So uh-huh. we're, we're strong believers in, in the music tech part of it. We've got great partnerships with people like Apple and Ableton and Shure microphones and Moog synthesizers. And we see that as a real driver of growth in the program. 
Well, the thing I love hearing about those types of programs in schools is it does cast a wider net to engage those students who may not be a really great fit for a traditional band, orchestra, choir program at a school. So you're pulling those kids in and it can be a really great way too to implement like STEM or STEAM concepts when you're dealing with all... A hundred (laughs) percent. Yeah. I mean, this is what... So I'll say two things about it. One is when I started... Seven years ago, I can't say that we saw a lot of demand from educators for the music tech or the hip hop or the pop music part of it. So not necessarily from students, but from the educators. Right, right. I think there was some resistance from educators traditionally, you know, um, in your more traditional music education fronts to, you know, open the door to something like that. And that's, we've seen a 180 degree change. And that Mm -hmm. we, I think that the demand from the students has been such that the educators have really seen, you know, the value, the value in it and growing Mm -hmm. their program. And then to your point, it's not easy to, when you learn a digital audio workstation, maybe you start out in GarageBand and then you go to Logic or Pro Tools or, or FL Studio, there is a significant STEM portion in addition to the music portion. So you have to learn how to use a pretty complicated piece of software. Uh-huh. There's some physics. And then on top of that, back to the music part, like you need to acquire some keyboard skills. We've seen, a, like I said, a 180 degree change in people's approach to it. Well, one thing that's exciting about Save the Music's next phase here is you're, you really are focused on career pathways and turning music education into music careers. And it's it's neat to see how you're doing that, not just with the traditional music education programs, but also with, like you mentioned, hip hop and music production, music tech, audio production, beat making. I think you do a fair amount with composing too. So it sounds like those are all big pieces of what this next phase will be for Save the Music. Is that accurate? That's right. I think that part of it is just a natural progression, which is we have thousands now of high school students out there who are taking these Jay Dilla music tech program classes, and that's their interest. We've been doing a series of partnerships with record labels and other music industry partners to bring our students together with people who are marketers, managers, uh, lawyers, producers, uh-huh. mix mixers, engineers, festival promoters, because there are many, many other ways if you're passionate about music and can connect mm-hmm. music to your education and your career to make a living in music. And a lot of times those are more sustainable, maybe, than being a performer you know, or an artist. <laughs> and also we're seeing a lot of demand on the other side. And so I, I should mention, you mentioned a little bit about the financials. We raise most of our funds from individual donations, foundations that are based in the communities we serve, and then music industry partnerships. So, you know, the record labels, the streaming services, mm-hmm. Sirius XM partners like that. And on the music industry side, they have a real mandate or, you know, initiative or priority right now to bring more diverse set of young people into the job, those jobs in the industry, Mm -hmm. because most of the music is made 
by people in communities of color. And the rest of the industries should reflect that diversity, I think. So sure. yeah, I think there are a lot of things going the right direction to make that uh, a really exciting part of we do. So when students graduate from high school, graduate from these programs, there's either a college pathway or a career pathway, you know, for them that continue in music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fantastic. Well, we'll include lots of links in the show notes, of course. Tell us again, just verbally, your website. Oh, right. And I also be would be remiss or my development person would come uh, track me down if I didn't mention it. People, <laughs> people can donate. Again, we uh, rely yes. on indi- individual donations. We don't get our funding anymore from, from VH1 for the most part. Oh, um, okay. So yeah, VH1 only provides about 5% of our budget. We rely, <gasps> we rely on private donations for the other 90, okay. 95% of our budget. So yeah, so go to savethemusic.org. You know, sign up for the email newsletter, follow us on all the, we're on all the channels, all the things, all the TikToks uh-huh. and Instagrams and Facebooks and Twitters and LinkedIn's. Uh, so we're easy to find on all those places. Yep. I'm sure there's a donate button on there. And I know there's also a great link for advocacy tools for people who are interested in digging in more to that. There's a great FAQ page for people who want more specifics on if their school qualifies for working with you through grants and just how that process works. You mentioned the email list. So lots of resources right. on the website and we'll have all those. Yeah. And I, and I, I just want, I want to leave people with this idea that, you know, even if you don't get involved with us, our goal is every student, every school should be making music and it takes the whole music community and ecosystem mm-hmm. to, to make that happen. I always say that save the music actually is not a great name for the organization, because, you know, music doesn't need saving. Everybody loves music, Mm. you know? So we talk a lot about how music saves, right? So Mm -hmm. instead of saving the music, we talk about music saves. So even if you're not inclined to donate to save the music, what I can say is if you're a listener of this podcast, there's so many ways that you can be a champion for music in your own community, you know, at your your school, at your kid's school, by getting involved with the local nonprofit, by supporting local artists or venues. You know, there's so much going on in the world that is rightfully urgent, you know, and mm-hmm. sort of takes up people's time and, and attention and energy. We really need people who understand the power and the benefit of music education, you know, and have that emotional connection to it to help get this done. Because the idea is that the last thing we say is we're not in the business of creating great musicians. If that's a byproduct, like that's that's amazing. Our goal is to help young people grow into successful grown people who can navigate the world. One thing I was thinking of as you were talking there, and this is beyond the scope of our conversation today, so I won't spend too much time on it. But when you're talking about music saves, I was just thinking it would be so interesting to have research done, and maybe you're already doing this, on student outcomes before and after that music program is jump-started in some of these schools, because music does improve outcomes for the students, for teachers, for schools, for communities, whether it's student attendance, graduation rates, participation rates, math and reading scores, so many of those 
check the box type things that administrators are looking at that are made better and improved by music participation and music training. So it'd be really interesting to yeah, for, do some before and after research. We do. We're, we're, doing, we're doing it a bunch. We, we have a, so the Newark case study is, is on the site and we also have a, a case study in the state of West Virginia where we've invested in over a hundred middle school programs in, in West Virginia yeah. alone. You're right. This is a subject for a whole other podcast, which is, right. <laughs> which is, is music education valuable just for its own sake, which I think uh-huh. is my opinion. And I'm guessing most podcast listeners here opinion, just like art and music and beauty are the right of every person, uh-huh. like in our world. Right, and, you know, right. that said, there are definitely plenty of people out there, many of whom are school administrators who want to see the follow on impact and results in, yeah, in, in academics and attendance and uh, parent engagement, and graduation rates and students who go on to college and all that data is definitely out there. And we're making more all the time. For sure. Good. Well, Henry, this has been really fun to hear about Save the Music, what you guys are up to, what's next. I ask all my guests to close out our conversation with a musical ending, a coda, by sharing a song or story about a moment that music enhanced your life. Is there a song or a story that you can share with us today? I'm happy to. So when I say music saved my life, really the thing that saved my life was punk rock. So I grew up uh, in the Washington, D.C. area in the 1980s when DC was the center of the punk rock world. So I spent a lot of time going to see bands in and around that scene, particularly bands like Fugazi, and they had their own record label, which was Discord Records. And Fugazi and the Discord bands really espouse this idea that one, you could do it yourself, like you didn't need to get signed to you know a big record label to make music or play shows or put out records or or tour and Ian Mackay and the band Fugazi also along with the other discord bands were very connected to the social impact and the message of what they did and and it still rocked it like wasn't preachy. It wasn't you know like preachy or, or boring. I mean, if you go on YouTube and just see those old Fugazi videos, I mean, it is the rockinest thing that you'll ever see. What it led me to do was I was very inspired to uh, start my own band and put out my own records, and I did all those things. And we just remastered the '90s album and put it out on oh, Sp- really? Spotify and TikTok and. Oh, wow. uh, band camp and all the places. So the band was called Spunk Davis. If you're at all interested. <laughs> we'll have to in, include a link in the show notes. Yeah, please, please. <laughs> we need to playlist it, favorite it. We need the streams. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but but really, if there are people out there who don't know Fugazi or, or Discord or that DC scene, it's, it's well worth checking out. Changed my life. Thank you, Henry, for joining us today and for all you do to enhance lives with music for so many students and teachers across the country and indirectly for the rest of their communities. As always, there are lots of links in the show notes to resources discussed in this episode, as well as a transcript of the episode. You'll also find a list of related episodes you may enjoy, including music trainings effect and the pandemic's effect on social emotional learning, hip hop's use with adolescents, 
music techs use with adolescent mental health challenges, STEAM integration in the classroom, and transferring music skills to life. All Enhanced Life with Music episodes are evergreen, so check out the back catalog for more ways that music can make your life better. Today's show notes can be found at mpetersonmusic.com slash podcast. This is episode 145. A link to the show notes page is in the episode details right in your podcast app. If you know of someone who would enjoy this episode, please share it with them. It's easy to do right in your podcast listening app. Just look for your app's share function to share by text, email, or social media. And of course, you can always share the show notes webpage as well. You can always connect with me on email, mindy at mpetersonmusic.com, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Thank you so much for joining me today. Until next time, may your life be enhanced with music.